Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Josh Adams, and on our panel today, we have myself, Bruce Tate. Hi, folks. Mika Kalathal. Hi, everyone. Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. And Lars Wiegmann. Hello. Today, we're going to be having just a general, modestly guided conversation between the panelists and see where things go. So someone now is going to kick us off with the topic. Go. That's a great segue. You know it. So one of the things I'd like to talk about is... How is everybody feeling in the pandemic? How has it impacted your relationships with other people in the Elixir community? That is an interesting question. Uh, For my part, I think it has mostly made me connect more to the Elixir community in that I've been inside a lot and had reason to spend time on Twitter more. So I've also been on parental leave for a bit. So I had a few hours of boredom here and there there in the middle of the night while waiting for my daughter to fall asleep. And I've just mostly spent them on like the my elixir status hashtag and elixir lang and that sort of thing. And just talking to people, getting uh, <laughs> getting the hang of what's going on in the community and that sort of thing. So for me, I think I've become more involved during the pandemic rather than uh, sliding sliding out of it. And I haven't really seen a drop-off in interest for Elixir as uh, as far as client work goes. Yeah, I was going to say roughly the same thing. Uh, whatever free time I did have that I was out of the house, I've kind of reallocated that time to either uh, writing or answering questions on the Elixir forums or just uh, just finding ways to connect with people via the internet instead of you know in person, uh, just because of the, the circumstances of things. Your app is slow, and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app, and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. It's a strange one for me because I, I kind of ha- have had a strange Elixir trajectory. Um, my Elixir career kind of started when I was coding Ruby, um, had just written seven languages in seven weeks, didn't find the ultimate language that was, you know, basically I wrote that book out of fear, right? I was afraid that, um, that the object-oriented paradigm was going to run out of steam and and um, really couldn't handle the concurrency in the way that I wanted to. Um, but I'm hardcore dyslexic. I mean, hardcore dyslexic, where um, you know I, I can barely spell anything coherently, and um, it's kind of a strange thing for an author, right? But that's true. And so a lot of the languages that I played with in seven languages in seven weeks, Erlang was that way, um, Haskell was that way, um, Lisp was that way. They basically played games with um, a lot of the, the structure that I need in a syntax, 
um, and added too much syntax and too many walls of text and, and things for me to get through. So, um, so I tracked down Jose and, um, you know, as he was kind of building up this language that had a Ruby-like syntax, which at the time was really important to me. And also was dealing in substantive ways with with the problems that I kind of needed to solve, right? So, you know, we we were um, there was a small group of us that was um, that was using the language. That maybe we were the the fifth or sixth, um, you know, big customer that was on Elixir, and um, and then over time, I spent a lot of time with Jim Freeze and and um, and kind of working with them. We were both in Austin and we were working to get the conference scene established. I spent some time with Jose on, um, you know, getting off Dynamo and um, onto plug and into Phoenix and, you know, writing that book and then um, working with, um, with Jose some more with adopting Elixir. But over time I've kind of slipped away from the national Elixir community and kind of embraced more of the local flavor. And one of the things that that drove me in that direction was I started building this um, this conference. And the whole reason for the conference to exist was to sit some mentees at a table with some of the, the better computer scientists in the world. And we did that. But one of the things that that's done is, is it has given me this myopic focus around Chattanooga. So the pandemic has, has basically uh, said, you know, we're not meeting any in person anymore. Who is interested in getting Elixir mentoring? And so Elixir Kenya has showed up in a, in a strong way, which is strange because that's seven hours away. And um, Elixir Brazil, um, we're starting to, to build more relationships there. So it's been kind of this wild mix where, um, you know, I, I was uh, more nationally or more internationally focused and then very myopically locally focused and the pandemic has swung the pendulum in the other direction. On that same note of conferences, uh, where is uh, ElixirConf taking place this year? Does anyone know? I haven't even looked. It's going to be online. It was supposed to be in, in Colorado. Um, okay. And, uh, but it's, it's going to be online. I think that um, Jim called me um, to, to do some live view training. Um, which means that that Chris can't, and probably that that Sophie has has said no. Um, but you know, I'm I'm down the list a little bit. But I've been starting to to teach um, more live view with with kind of a, a small team setting. Um, our response to the pandemic has been, well, we have to we have to do it remotely. But um, it's hard to do remote well with a large class. So I've been doing more smaller classes. And we've been doing more project-focused class classes, so I'm I'm picking that up. But as part of that conversation, I kind of um, you know teased out from Jim that um, I think Elixir Conference is going um, on online, and um, I'm I'm pretty sure he's announced it now. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah, the, I be- uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I believe it's it's entirely online, and I I did uh, attend. Uh, uh, Elixir Confi U online. I must say, I do miss having the the in-person conferences because I've found the Elixir community to be very friendly. Uh, I was in, uh, I attended Elixir Conf EU in Prague and I've been to Codebeam Stockholm uh, and it's 
really been a great experience and a good place to just get to know people and uh, sort of punch through the the aura of fame that you can so, sort of see around people when they're online and doing cool talks and if you sit down and eat with them it's it's just people it's just other developers uh, and um, I miss that part but I uh, I think they're doing a good thing with the conferences overall it's going online is the right thing it's unfortunate that we can't have physical conferences because they're a lot of fun uh, on the other end a lot of people that couldn't possibly attend ElixirConf EU uh, obviously showed up for ElixirConf EU virtual or at least uh, bought a ticket to see the VODs which I did yeah, that'd be interesting going forward if, you know, once once we're all able to see each other again, we could have both the in-person conferences and then have another uh, option for people who can't attend if we can still stream them online and still have this similar kind of, uh, um, you know, broadcast uh, internationally. That's a really difficult thing to pull off. <laughs> yeah, as, uh, as a person it's with... nice to have, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that one of the things that we need to learn how to do from a conference perspective is decide that the online events are going to be necessarily different from the in-person events. Uh, there, there is just a different beast. Um, so a good example is that when, uh, so when we put on a conference in person, you know, Maggie, who is Garden Tate on Twitter, does an excellent job of kind of drawing people out and maybe making the um, speakers feel loved and welcome. And in turn, they make our attendees feel loved and welcome. And that's kind of the secret sauce behind what we do. And also, I think some of the d diversity work really makes for a better conference you know, when, when the community looks more like we want the world to look and a little bit less like, you know, the white male dominated programming community that, that a lot of functional conferences have become, it's, it's better. You know, there's, there's um, more perspective, but doing the same thing online is really difficult. So we've, we've played with some ideas like, for example, going with more of a prepared panel type setting um, podcasts are actually pretty good for this kind of, of format because it, it, so typically in a conference, panels are an opportunity to put the same speakers in seats without having them prepare. And I believe that that's a mistake. I believe that the way to do a panel is to prepare the panelists with a structure of, of things that you want to talk about. Um, and with, um, you know, a, an overall skeleton that you're then free to kind of deviate from or stick to as, um, as the case may be. But it's, it's really, really hard to get right, especially in an age where there's so much Zoom happening. Yeah, no, for sure. Those are, those are great points. And definitely some, uh, some great insight from, you know, someone who's actually hosted and put together a conference. I don't know if I would do it again if um, you know I had the opportunity to do a conference. It's um, it's a lot of work, um, and you know for for every hour that I put in, Maggie puts in three, and um, you know it's there are um, it's pretty thankless too, right? So there are 
um, people out there that whatever price point you set, they want it set lower, whatever, um, whatever content is out there. Um, you know, there's, there's the, the cancel culture is a real thing, right? So um, you get beat down pretty hard for the actions of others. And um, I'm not sure that I would do it again if I had the opportunity to get into it. It is pretty rewarding. Um, but you know, there's, it, there's, there's a downside too. Yeah. I mean, we need to fix the payoff if we want to keep conferences around, right? I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, and technical writing also, um, that's, that's a, you know, there's basically, I think that it's easy to, um, well, I won't say easy, but, um, being paid is as a, an Elixir developer, an Elixir consultant was a lot easier for me than, than working as, as an author. Well, basically the things that I think that, that benefit the community the most. So I'm trying to work through how to do that well. Can you unpack that a bit? I'm kind of curious. Like what, the, what are some of the challenges from you know, the education side that you're, that you're facing? So I think that one of the things that's happened at Groxio is that we have started to understand better what a remote customer wants. And basically it's, it's allowed us to, to stay pretty profitable um, during, during this time. But, you know, the two things that, that are most interesting to me are that we are doing less prepared content and more content that is essentially adaptive to um, to the needs of the class. So, since our classes are maximum of five five paid people plus one scholarship, you know, we'll we'll um, get offer a scholarship to someone from Brazil or or Kenya or something like that that doesn't have the same um, you know that or you know the strength of the dollar is just too strong. But those small classes allow me to flip the keyboard. And when we do that, we're, um, we're able to basically teach some elixir in a different way. We're able to say, hey, well, if you shape your code in, in reducers, you know, basically things that are piping friendly, and you know, when, when you're able to build more of a core, elixir, the language will reward you. And then you can basically let people make mistakes and stumble away from that path and then kind of point out, um, well, let's rein this in a little bit. And um, so you know, then I'm, I'm more of a coach and less of, you know, a keyboard, you know, I don't know, robot or something that's, that's, um, that's droning on about concepts. And I find out that with that format, people teach each other as well. So one of the things that, that we've done is we've shifted away from the paper books um, where there's, there's just a whole lot of effort um, for not a, not a um, huge amount of payoff. We're, um, we'll probably do one more this year, uh, one more paper book in, um, in the live view book and then, um, and then kind of see where that takes us. But we've shifted towards more video format. And, um, and that's, I think, uh, going to work out okay for us, um, mainly because it, it helps prepare us for the, uh, for the classroom. Um, and, and so that's kind of the way the company is shaped right now. It's, it's a, a training company, and it's a, um, a company that's, that's really transitioning to more of a video, 
direction, but it's hard to build paid content in Elixir right now um, because people um, are looking for free and there's some excellent free stuff out there. Yeah, you started on saying that it's harder to charge for, for example, technical writing compared to making money off of software development, which I think ties neatly into the whole, how does pandemic affect your relationship to Elixir? I think it's still fairly easy to get Elixir work if you have a decent resume for uh, for this type of work. And I don't think most experienced software developers are going hungry during the pandemic. I think almost, I, I haven't talked to any developers that I know that are struggling right now um, with that. I know there are always like junior developers trying to get their first piece of major work, uh, their first job, their first in, is always a challenge, has always had a high threshold. And I imagine that threshold shot through the ceiling with the pandemic. But I, I can imagine trying to build a business that isn't based off of building the software, but teaching the concepts of the software. Because the people that want to learn these things generally don't have a software developer salary already. Yeah, and one of the things that we've stumbled on with this small um, class format is that by going to a class size of four to six, we're starting to build uh, pretty tight bonds within the other people in the class. And so um, it was purely by accident, purely because we basically had some, some empty seats that we wanted to fill that we, we stumbled on the idea that if you put a mentee that, that has basically been putting in the work over some time into the class with some experienced developers, it really helped their confidence. It gave them some connections. And um, we've seen three different job um, offers come out to the mentees um, from this program, which is really, really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I think Elixir is also in a really good state for jobs, as you guys are saying, and especially even for new hires, there's there's quite a bit of, I find Elixir, like challenges finding Elixir devs uh, from a company perspective. So it's it's quite easy to try and snap up Elixir devs right now during a pandemic. Yeah, I've also noticed that a lot of companies, even though they may not be looking for somebody with uh, you know, the 10 years Elixir experience, uh, they're more than willing to train somebody. And I think the developer experience in Elixir is so great that getting somebody ramped up and, and into a productive state is a very, very tight cycle there. So you could bring somebody on who's never done Elixir before and get them you know, productive within two to three weeks without any issues. So it seems like companies are more willing to hire somebody without any professional Elixir experience and then train them on a job and then they're well on their way and, and have no issues. I agree with that entirely. It's super easy to ramp up an experienced developer. And also, I wish more companies would do on-the-job training type stuff instead of just hiring for checkboxes. Yeah, let me add that it's super effective to take a, um, a relatively junior team and bring them up. Um, so I think that if we did more training with, with people like Erlang Solutions and, and with Groxio, that, um, that we'd be better off, right? That that essentially you can never go wrong investing in your existing talent. And it is almost always a better idea to build capacity with the people that, that are on a team 
um, if you need to build incremental capacity rather than hiring an additional dev, um, almost always a better idea. Yeah, and it's the responsibility of technical management to make sure that the other executives are aware that that's the best strategy. <laughs> right, right. How about another question? One of the things that I've been doing is playing a lot with Phoenix Live View, and I really like it so far. I like that. Um, I like the programming model behind it. I like that it basically exposes just enough of OTP to kind of lock into those concepts and also grabs the best from frameworks, user interface frameworks on the web that I like, like Elm and, and kind of the strategy behind React. Um, so one of the things that I'm starting to discover though is that when you're dropping in a form, there's a really cool technique that, that I've stumbled on that I think I like, and I wanna see, um, wanna gauge opinions. Has anybody tried to play with a schemaless change set within a live view form? I have not, but I imagine that would be a fairly, a fairly good approach for, for getting some validation with live view. I've definitely seen people use it for parameter validation on incoming uh, data in an Ecto controller or in a Phoenix controller. Uh, so I could see how it would be useful for forms as well because you'd be able to kind of validate your data as it's coming in just using change sets, which are wonderful to work with. Yeah, I agree. And, and um, the idea that we're, that a form is really change policy um, with, with a submit on the end, that's, that's really interesting. And it comes out with, with live view well. So one of the things that I've been doing is building schema list chain sets and putting that in the live directory for my live views and, um, and essentially calling them form data or, you know, uh, whatever form data. And it kind of plays into the whole layered architecture that James and I came up with for designing lecture systems. So the idea that if you, if you start your, um, if you have a functional core that has most of your pure-ish type things in it, and um, you can basically view things in the core as a pipeline. And there's the, the top of the pipeline, and that's a constructor basically, or some type of data creator, right? There are reducers in there, which aren't formal Elixir reducers. But if you hold your head sideways a little bit, you can see something that, that takes some type and returns some form of the same pipe. And, um, and basically, then you could have a transformer like render would be an example of something that transforms, you know, state, right? And so when you put things together in this way, the and and you have that schemaless chain set at the top of the of the food chain, and then that feeds into something that builds your constructor. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? you can find it. It's at adventuresin.net. .net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out. 
today. So schemaless chain sets pushing through monads into something that does something with the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You said it better than I did though. I just like Don't bring monads monad. into this. <laughs> so that's all I wanted to do. I hear you. Yeah. That's, that's definitely an interesting pattern. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to experiment with that because I, I did something similar uh, kind of like Mika where I would have like a directory with all my uh, ecto validations for all my uh, controllers uh, and I found that to be nice. And I actually like that pattern so much. I made a, a library called Forams that wraps all that kind of in a macro. So that'd be, that'd be interesting to explore that same type of pattern, but for, uh, for live views. I'm curious, is any of this kind of bundled into Surface at all? Has anyone played with Surface? Which is the, the live view component, uh, like wrapper? It would make perfect sense for Surface, right? So, so basically the idea is that you have change policy and I would typically want to wrap it up on the user interface side, which is a little weird, right? Which doesn't fit um, the way that we kind of package things today. Um, but it kind of, you know, when you're talking about a form, I would like to see something, I would like to see a model called form data that encapsulates a constructor that builds either a map or a struct out of that thing that has the field types that has the, um, the change or validate, and it has submit or save, those four things. If you encapsulate those things, it's, it's all you need. I think I see a, a blog post in my future about this. All right, um, so hope you write it. Um, I'm, I'm doing you know, mostly videos on, on Groxio with a live view, and so far, schemaless chain sets of the 15 videos I've made so far, um, three of them deal with schemaless chain sets. I, I might have to, I, steal might be a hard word, but I might, uh, I might snag some inspiration in that case. Steal, steal away. <laughs> I like that word. So I had a bit of another question that I'm curious about. Uh, from what I've seen, people can dive fairly deep into Elixir in very different fairly deep pools for example if you go deep into nerves you might not even touch phoenix for uh, is there a part of elixir or erlang in otp uh, that you're i feel uncomfortable not comfortable using or haven't tried yet that you think might be in your future Ooh, good question uh, i was gonna actually say hot code upgrades which is i feel like it's like a I don't know, but maybe one of those uh, levels that once you break into it, you have like real beam superpowers. But uh, yeah, that's that's something that's been on my radar to really get comfortable with and uh, really get familiar with. Because I mean, with the introduction of uh, you know live view now becoming more mainstream, I think making like majestic monoliths in Elixir and having hot, hot code upgrades where your service never goes down is just such a enticing prospect there that uh, you know it, it'd be hard to to not investigate and, and play with that kind of idea uh, code upgrades are definitely something i've i've never really played with but it seems like a lot of fun uh, i've heard some chatter on the elixir slack actually about uh, some people who are doing basically hot upgrades whenever you didn't need to change state and then just doing a full release and changing that state when you needed to and I thought that was a really good solution because in, in a typical application with hot upgrades, doing those state changes are kind of painful. Like you have to write the code for how that state changes. Whereas if you can just overwrite the entire thing, might as well. 
I wonder if that's going to require some integration to source control um, so that you could have something that looked like um, push change, you know, get push change um, rather than get push production, right? Um, that, that basically um, has its own path, right? It, it, and to me, I think the big thing that you have to do is write in some verification to know that the state is stable and to know that there are, for example, no migrations and things like that. But yeah, um, hot code um, loads is, is not something I thought about when, when I saw this question. I want to play with <laughs> nerves. And so once I play with nerves, I think I'll play with hot code reloading, but just because it's a convenient target to play with it. Yeah, I did figure I'll, I'd get hot code reloading as one of the things that, that people haven't tried because most people don't need it. Most people don't run systems that are that hard to update. <laughs> and uh, the whole trend for like web development and cloud infrastructure has been to handle the fact that most software needs to restart and you restart entire OS, you restart instances, you do rolling updates and that, that sort of thing. So <clears throat> hot code reloading sort of solves the problem in a strong potentially stronger way but also a way that's uh we we haven't built for it we've built for a, an entirely different solution to the same problem um i would like to see it and i if you're saying you have a blog blog post in your future i think live view and hot code reloading is definitely one a click worthy one uh, I know that's that's something that came up during ElixirConf EU in Prague that um, Chris McCord said that it, LiveView should basically just work with hot code reloading. So uh, curious to see how that how that shakes out. Just actually updating your infrastructure and all your users suddenly get the new stuff is an interesting prospect. And I think um, Mika, the the version you mentioned is probably one of the more pragmatic approaches where you don't actually have to write, write state migrations unless you actually need them. Uh, that sounds yeah, like so, a decent one. So I mean, most That's people, both worlds. Yeah, most people just don't need hot code reloading, but like I, I see if you have some specialized hardware that you're managing stuff that's going on, it being a reasonable thing. And also if you have really long running stateful connections, so I, I have a friend that does a lot of, video uh, video streams with Corinto and the process of rolling new servers and dealing with ex existing connections on servers that have been rolled out from HA proxy and all that is actually a really heavy engineering load and it's possible that it's cheaper to solve it up front and not have to do all that uh, but yeah also be helpful for like just having items cached on your local nodes like say an ETS or something if you hot swap you don't need to necessarily clear those out which can sometimes lead to some warm up time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, one of the other alternatives is to use either uh, Swarm or Horde and then bring up new nodes. Uh, and then the old nodes will get the, the signal that, hey, this, this instance is being terminated. Transition all of your processes to, a, uh, you know, to another node and, and keep things up. So yeah, it'd be interesting to explore both of those, uh, you know, both hot code, uh, hot code reloading and uh, Swarm or Horde for I've for used Swarm view. in production and it was, uh, it was great, but not with LiveView. Yeah, likewise, I've used Swarm. I've never used Horde before, but there was that nice, I can't remember, I think it was ElixirConf 2018. There was a nice uh, 
uh, talk on running Horde in Kubernetes and there was like a tank game, if I recall correctly, and everyone in the room was playing this tank game and it didn't go down across a, uh, a Kubernetes deployment and everyone was wowed and awed and it was, it was good talk. Everybody loves a good demo. Yeah, especially when it pans out as you, as you want. <laughs> yeah, everyone except for the person giving the demo, I should say. Yeah, Erlang has a lot of things I've been meaning to try. Um, there, one of the weirder ones is definitely uh, WX widgets, um, native cross-platform UI bindings for Erlang that are in the standard library or in OTP. I don't know where you draw the line there. Um, and I've scratched the surface of it just barely while working on the Inky library. I made a tiny, tiny um, host. Like when you're working on your uh, on your development machine, and you're supposed to render to hardware, but you want something to render to on your development machine, so you don't have to test and like flash firmware every time you want to test a new pixel pattern. Um, so I tried building it in uh, WX widgets, which was a little bit of a pain because the documentation is terrible uh, because it's a very thin wrapper on top of an object-oriented uh, library, WX widgets. Uh, so you have to read up on that and it's a bit finicky, but I'm really curious to see how, how good of a native cross-platform application you can actually make using uh, just Elixir. There's no extra dependency. You just need to make sure that uh, WX widgets is compiled in, which can of course be a challenge, especially with recent Mac OS versions, I think. Uh, but that's one I really wanted to poke at some more, especially considering Scenic is moving a little bit slowly for my taste. And it does uh, focus on fixed size displays. So it's not ideal for building desktop software. And I'm a little bit skeptical of Electron as a solution for building desktop software as well. Amen. An Elixir-based solution to building desktop software would be absolutely amazing. It's, if yeah, you can use that as your full stack. WX is there and it works. And uh, I built lots of, lots of fun stuff with it, but nothing for like consumption. Do you happen always, to have any repos published with uh, code yeah, for I've got, I've got a bunch. You can hit me up. They're on github.com slash neuter. And then there's a billion repos there. And some of them have neat stuff in them. If uh, you have Tetris. one that's, uh, that's specifically good, try yeah, I'll, I'll find shoving one. I'll it find in the show notes. In because, the resources, yeah. yeah. I think that's good for people to have. It's always about the corner cases though, isn't it? Especially with this particular problem. Yeah, and actually my code will not run. Uh, it will not render a window on the Mac until you resize it because every example you find anywhere operates that way and I wasn't worth fixing it because it was just for me. Can you programmatically resize it on, on the application init to force that render? That can be your blog post. <laughs> That's three blog posts yeah, for anyone who's counting. All right, I found I found the code. It's uh, extras, and uh, that's not really what you want. Anyway, and uh, it's from 2016, so I'm sure there's lots of fun stuff to fix in there. I don't think the Erlang bindings from or WX widgets has moved much in the few in the last few years. Probably. Yeah, I was gonna say it's, some some parts of uh, OTP seem to stay pretty pretty stable and untouched for for years at a time. Uh, so it's 
probably just as usable now as it was then if I were to. <laughs> Damning with faint praise is what I hear. Just as usable as it used to be. It's a tricky thing because a lot of the fact that this exists at all in Erlang is amazing. And the fact that it it's so hard to approach uh, and pick up uh, compared to a lot of modern and much more used Elixir libraries, it's, it's a mixed blessing. But the fact that it's there and that no one has to reinvent uh, these bindings, I imagine this is what Observer uses. Uh, to yeah. render its UI yeah. and uh, just the fact that you can make a graphical UI without bringing in uh, everything else um, seems amazing to me I would love to see more uh, more modern or uh, I guess platform native bindings such as like Swift UI and that sort of thing to build uh, to build a common core uh, multiple UIs sort of deal, uh, but I guess you'll get into NIFS reports to to really get that working. So I wonder if um, very often when you have an older language and a newer language with good interop, um, especially a newer language with macros like Elixir, I wonder if wrapping wrapping that thing with Elixir would give would provide access to interesting abstractions in very much the same way that, that the macro system rounds out a lot of the rough edges in OTP. You know, there's, there's less of an Emacs key and there's, there's more of, you know, the, the use that basically folds in a lot of the ceremony. I wonder, man, that's not, I don't need another rabbit hole to go down. (laughs) Does anyone know if there are any uh, QT bindings in Erlang uh, or Elixir? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it would be like a third-party library. I have not seen any, but I haven't gone digging either. One thing that WX is really cool for is if you just want to capture uh, keyboard input. So like I made a little uh, organ. It would play sounds through a synthesizer. But it's hard in a command line program to just capture single key input, uh, trivially in Elixir back then at least. And so I just popped a WX window so you could type and it would capture each key press. So if anyone's looking to do that for a toy, hey, that's a way you can do it quick. That's pretty cool. Yeah, kind of in that, on that same, uh, in that same spirit, there are a lot of gems hidden inside of OTP that you just, you didn't even know existed until you searched it and you found something. Um, for example, a couple of years ago, I was at a telecom company and uh, some payload from some integration was sending like ASN formatted uh, files over. And first time I've ever seen an ASN file. And actually, given that it was a few years ago, I don't even remember what an ASN file really looks like or is. But uh, lo-, lo and behold, in Erlang OTP, there was an ASN compiler and parser. And I was able to just hook that into that and parse all my files without any issues. And this is all, you know, all built into the platform. So it really is amazing yeah. what we get for free. If you're doing telecom stuff, I bet there's lots of happy things that you find in the telecom language. So that's, uh, that's awesome that you got to take advantage of it. There's also an SSH uh, application, which makes it trivial to just have someone SSH into some process, which is very cool. I think Erlang has one of the biggest kind of, and OTP has one of the biggest built-in libraries out of any language I've ever seen. 
it's kind of nice and it's also daunting at times as well just because there's so much uh, like for example uh, gen state m or gen fsm is probably something most elixir developers never touch but it's quite interesting in erlang i'd be curious if you use uh, one of the state machine libraries for like a multi-part form in live view yeah, actually, it turns out that with, with LiveView, um, since it basically wraps your abstractions, um, you know, it's a lot less interesting in terms of um, like multi-part forms. So the, the technique that I've been doing um, for, for that kind of approach is, is to build what um, James Gray called a token. You know, you can imagine a token in a game board and just a, a big fat pure functional reducer that basically goes from, from step to step. And it works surprisingly well with, with live view, but I find that um, doing integration with existing OTP apps that are, that basically share state with live view apps that can get pretty tricky when, when you consider the, the corner cases, but yeah, I catch your point. Um, I, I love the, the state machine. OTP state machine. All right. So we've talked about live view a lot. I'm curious, are there other client technologies or techniques that anybody here finds interesting? So I always uh, sing about Elm, but my first experience with like a client connecting to the backend kind of very richly with Elixir was React and Redux and just having the subscriptions feed data into Redux and that sort of drive the React interface was really, really nice experience once it was all hooked together. Um, and I've found similar benefits with GraphQL subscriptions for things that are, that are not necessarily talking Phoenix channels natively. Um, anyway, is there anything like on the front end side that I should be aware of that y'all are playing with that you think is fun or any other kind of integration techniques? I haven't gotten to play with this yet, but it seems like an interesting project. Elixir script, which basically converts Elixir into JavaScript. Uh, I thought that would be a very interesting product. Is that Brian Joseph out of New Orleans? It, it is. Well, I'm just holding out for Lumen. <laughs> uh, no, but Lumen is what I'm, I'm looking forward to for actually doing what I want to do with um, Elixir and the front end. Um, what I've mostly been playing recently with is entirely static rendering of, uh, or rather entirely server-side rendered forms and trying to build some fairly, uh, fairly dynamic interfaces using only uh, HTTP and forms, which is uh, as <laughs> no JavaScript. Uh, and then I would ideally uh, start enhancing that with basically vanilla JS, uh, just no, uh, no frameworks, but that's sort of where I'm trending overall. And I think I see a lot of this overall in the Elixir community, that there's a little bit of a resistance to using a lot of JavaScript or uh, I wouldn't say avoiding using any JavaScript because I think most of the community is also quite pragmatic and realize that uh, there's, there's a need for UX. There's a need for, for some graceful behaviors in the front end. And I think that's why people love live view because it's, it strikes a balance and I think it strikes a useful balance for most web applications. Uh, but what I'm, starting to look at is how could I use live view for progressive enhancement, not uh, explicitly demand JavaScript and use live view for all of the interactions. Just 
how can I enhance with live view or can I just enhance with very slim amounts of JavaScript and can I build entirely um, uh, server-side rendered? Uh, and this also feeds into a bit of the Jamstack, if you're familiar, which is JavaScript APIs and markup, I believe, um, where you where you have entirely statically rendered sites that then have JavaScript that triggers the the more dynamic parts, if if necessary. And if you need login, maybe you need JavaScript, or if you need login, then you're posting a form, and then you get then you have to call a server at some point, but most of a site can be static. Most of a site can be incredibly performant, incredibly fast. And then you get a small amount of code just hitting a server somewhere. Yeah, we're doing Jamstack stuff on our company website, dba, dba, dba.com. There we go. Uh, using Elm pages. And it's, uh, it's pretty fantastic. I'm, I'm a big, big proponent of the Jamstack philosophy. Now, if I can minimize the J in Jamstack, I'll be there. Elm pages. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. I mean, I think where everybody is going, um, regardless of which technique that we're talking about here, is um, it reminds me of when we when we were building client-server applications and the internet first started to take root. What what basically we were we were looking for is not an application that wasn't distributed at all. We were okay with the request response. It was something that pushed the interaction into the infrastructure, right? And so that's what LiveView has done. Um, it has pushed more of the um, custom um, JavaScript into the infrastructure. And I think exactly, um, that's exactly what you're talking about, Lars, is, is keeping things really, really tiny and reducing the surface area of what makes an application a distributed application. And that's exactly the right thing to be thinking about. Yeah, it seems like one of the biggest value propositions with, you know, kind of these big uh, front-end frameworks like React, Vue, Angular, is that, uh, you know, pre-bundled components and it's ridiculously easy to have a date picker or ridiculously easy to have like, uh, you know, a parallax effect or a slideshow or anything like that. So 
it seems like uh, in, in, in that search for minimalism, people are reaching out for tools like Tailwind CSS, which uh, looks to make uh, you know, styling and making components pretty easy. And then things like Alpine JS, where it's just uh, you know, a slight bit of mark, uh, markup in your um, HTML attributes to get some of that dynamic behavior. And I think couple that with something like Live View, and you have a pretty good uh, combination there. But I haven't I haven't played with that combination. I've just read about the read some things that other people have posted, and it seems it seems pretty enticing. So true story. My first Live View student, um, basically Patrick Thompson, uh, wrote an article um, that I'll post in the um, in the pics and the show notes about. Um, about using Live View Interop with with Alpine, it's pretty cool. And he also wrote one of the first couple of component type articles on Live View, or a series, one where he did a, um, a modal component and just a, a classic Live View component. And I'll post those in the show notes. Cool. Can you give us the the TLDR? Was it a successful uh, POC? What was the experience like at the end? Oh, I, so I, I think that um, so he he loved so um, he's basically uh, posting a how-to for um, for new live view technologies and um, I, they're all they're all um, interesting and accessible articles and I'll I'll drop them in the show notes. Cool, I'm definitely have to read this. So before we started recording, uh, there was some beginning discussion about uh, functional languages and other functional programming um, languages that apparently some of my co-panelists enjoy. Um, and I'm sitting here curious because I haven't spent much time with any of them. I know a few people who are crazy about Haskell, but I haven't gotten into it. Um, and for me, what really brings me to Elixir and the Beam and Erlang is that it does things that no other runtime I know of can or attempts to do. Uh, it provides uh, distribution and concurrency in a manner that I don't see done anywhere else. So it can provide performance, latency guarantees, and whole programming approaches that we don't see much elsewhere and that for example can't be reliably replicated with for the the languages i'm from which is like python php node.js um, they can't quite do it in that way uh, but i'm sure there's a reason why you're so excited about closure for example so i just wanted to ask um are there things in those languages and what are the things in those languages that you would like to see in Elixir and Erlang and the Beam? I'll take that one. I have a relationship with a, um, a man named Stuart Halloway, who's um, one of the founders of, um, of the, the company that's, um, that produces closure and that's relevance. And um, he has been working with this database system, which effectively uses kind of a minimalist um, strategy um, with event sourcing to kind of uh, build a model. But if we think of our database strategy as CRUD, create, re read, update, delete, um, the uh, Datomic basically embra embraces creates and reads only. 
there's no updates, there's no deletes. You basically mark additional attributes. And it is a stunningly um, elegant way of thinking about the, the database. Um, that's, a, that's a closure framework. And I, I have an affinity for closure because the, the macro system is so sim similar to the one in Elixir um, and because of the simplicity of you know, the language, the data structure, and the syntax tree all being the same. Um, I, I love those things. Uh, there's another language that's interesting to me called Pony which is an object-oriented language. But what they've done is build in something called reference capabilities. And reference capabilities allow you to um, modify data only when it's safe and generate compile errors if, there were, if, if there's a concurrent access of something that's not safe. Um, and it is just a stunningly beautiful concept that um, that I got to explore a little while with one of the early Groxio modules. Is that similar to Rust's uh, like borrowing capability? In not. Pony? It's not really the same. It's it uses a um, an abstraction called the reference capability, where you know, for example, if if. It, it it controls things across three dimensions, um, whether they're um, whether it's uh, whether mutable mutability is allowed, whether copies are allowed, and um, another one. But basically, there's a there's a table that says if you're doing one, you can't do the other, and so you have to basically specify every type in terms of not just the data type, but also the reference capability. Oh, that's interesting. I must take yeah. a look at that. Really cool. I'm always a fan of Elm, uh, primarily because the error messages make it really hard to write code that doesn't run, basically impossible, um, which is always nice to know that, that things, if they compile, are just peachy. Um, and I wish I could get that somewhere else, but it turns out you need a pretty rigorous typing system, and that doesn't really work so great with distribution. So yet, until someone does something very smart that I don't know. Uh, a type system seems to type system seems to be the um, leading target right now for a lot of development around the beam. I mean, we have both Gleam, which is a new language uh, for the beam, same as Elixir and Erlang in that sense, but it does include a type system. Uh, and then there's the efforts that I've only heard dubbed as Erlang two, uh, which I believe is done at WhatsApp and in that sense, Facebook, uh, where they're working on Erlang plus type system. I'm, I'm on the fence with, uh, with types. Uh, I, I don't really miss them. Coming from uh, you know, C, C++ background, uh, I don't really miss having types in, uh, in Elixir, and I find myself to be rather productive uh, without them, as long as you kind of follow consistent conventions. So usually I'll, you know, I'll tag my tuples with like OK or error. And it's, I mean, it's something you kind of get into over time and, and develop those patterns. But yeah, I don't, uh, I don't see myself missing any, any kind of type system in the language. And if there is a type system, hopefully it doesn't become intrusive or, or, or limit uh, productivity, but you know, that that's, uh, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm willing to be convinced. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I hate that people associate the type systems of things like Elm with the type systems of things like Java or, or C++ because um, th they're both type systems, but the experience is so dramatically different. Um, it's, 
I understand hating one and I wish more people would try the other uh, thing, Henley Miller type systems that just happened. I, I did a bit of Haskell in uh, in graduate school, and I wasn't a fan of that either. So again, yeah, willing Haskell, to willing to be convinced, but not not a hundred percent sold just yet. I, so, I want to love Haskell, but uh, it's it can be so many different things that I feel like it's just a little frictiony. So I believe that Alex has said a very wise thing, but I don't think that Alex is saying it fully. Because it's kind of like saying, I wrote Visual Basic and I enjoyed it, right? I like writing code with no types. Um, or not necessarily no types, but with less type support. I like writing more dynamic code. I think that that is a wise thing. So I was part of a conversation, um, really not part of, I was a fly on the wall, when um, when David... Turner, I believe his name was, the creator of Miranda, which was one of the world's first lazy languages, um, was talking to Joe Armstrong and, and he said, um, he said, I am just absolutely astounded that you have, re you have achieved the, um, the reliability within the Erlang community that you have without the types. So, I'm wrong. I didn't think that you'd be able to do it. Um, and I think that the reason we're able to do so is that we think of failure in a different way. And so I think that maybe rather than all of the, the tools which would allow us to bolt a type system on to Elixir and Erlang and, and dramatically change the experience, um, some ways for the better, um, many ways um, for the worse, um, we might think about some things like, for example, um, I, I remember the um, the Ada um, programming language, um, and really Chris Keithley's work with the norm um, boundary checker, right? The the idea that that you have um, that you have preconditions that must pass when data flows into a particular API. I, I believe that they have a lot of merit. Yeah, I'm not sure I would have approached Elixir the way I have if it had uh, one of the type systems I've I've seen from, for example, Haskell, which I found incredibly uh, tricky to approach and parse. I'm curious what Gleam will mean for for the Beam, and I'm curious to see how interoperability will uh, look, because I think it's good to get the possibility to do. Um, stricter typing uh, on the beam, but I'm not sure I want to do it. Uh, I'm from I'm from Python. I enjoyed Python uh, as a fine language. I learned on like Perl and PHP. So uh, type systems uh, were pretty much uh, not there. Not not something I had to care about much. Um, and going into Elixir. I still don't have to really care about type systems, but it's um, there's a lot of safeties uh, that are available. But I also understand the people that want to see tooling that can only be done when we have static types and a stricter type system or uh, more type information uh, to work off of. Uh, automated tools are incredibly useful for software quality sometimes, <laughs> but they can also be stifling. Yeah, I never would have gotten into Elixir if it had the own type system. So that's my conundrum. Uh, anywho, so I think we should wrap it up because we've taken a long time. 
uh, and it's been lots of fun. Um, but I know that at least I have to go to a meeting. Um, and I know we've been on for a bit. So why don't we move on to picks? Um, Bruce, did you want to go with your picks? Yeah, so I have three picks. The Pony Lang, um, we'll drop that in the speaker notes. And also the, the couple of articles from my student and friend, um, Patrick Thompson. A great article on JavaScript and Alpine Interop and another article on LiveView Components. Awesome. Lars, do you have any picks? Yeah, um, I stumbled across on Twitter um, a website by Cassie Evans. Uh, Cassie.codes, uh, who brought me into watching a trend that's going on on Twitter right now, which is like quirky web design, happy web design, interesting, lively web design. Uh, and uh, following at Cassie Codes on Twitter has given me a lot to see there. And I find it delightful because it reminds me of the old days of the web, but with current and uh, actual high fidelity uh, design aesthetics so it's just lively pages that have uh, that have a lot more personality than what you'd get just throwing bootstrap on something so i recommend checking that out i recommend following her and uh, just paying attention to what's going on on the design end and the visual end of the web awesome mika do you have a pick or two i have one pick for this week it's actually a package called kathy it's a admin package for Phoenix applications, similar to Rails Active Admin. Um, and I, I just think packages like these are so, so useful. And one of the things that coming from Ruby to Elixir, uh, there was a big lack of is these, these packages that would basically abstract major parts or, or major utility of your application away from you. Um, so I think Kathy is doing a great job by kind of bridging that gap and making it a lot easier to add an app, an admin interface into your application. Awesome. I had not heard of that. And uh, Alex, do you have a pick? Yeah. So I'd like to pick uh, an article from uh, Andrea Leopardi. Uh, the title of the article is uh, Process Pools with Elixir's Registry. And uh, it's a really nice article. It kind of goes into how to design uh, you know, pool managers, how to set up your supervision trees, kind of compares a couple of different designs. So I would uh, highly recommend uh, reading it and uh, you know, deep diving into registries and, and supervisors and stuff. Fantastic. And I will make, uh, I will make one pick and it's uh, influenced by Lars, but simone.computer slash web desktops is uh, just some excellent websites that act like computer interfaces. So that also brings me joy. Um, also the Pine phone, I got my Pine phone, Linux phone in, and uh, it's fantastic and it's 150 bucks. Anyway, so I think that wraps it up for us. I didn't, I didn't miss anybody, right? Okay, so I think that wraps it up for us. Thanks everybody for joining us and I hope you'll join us next time for Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.